and go to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. We are slowly making our way through this wonderful epistle that I say Paul wrote. And I'm going to read the first four verses, and then we will make our way through this chapter. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath builded the house has more honor than the house. For every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. So we want to look at how Christ is superior to Moses in this chapter. So let's have a word of prayer. Father, again, we thank you for an opportunity to fellowship. It is nice to be able to break the bread of life and to hear what you have to say to us through your precious word. So, Lord, uh, forgive us all our sins, cleanse us by your precious blood, and give us ears to hear in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. We started this epistle by explaining that this is a book that teaches that Jesus is better than angels. He's better than Aaron. It's going to show that he's better than Joshua. Here we're looking at the fact he's better than Moses. Over and over again, that one word, better, it turns up in this particular book. We learn about a better high priest, a better covenant, a better sacrifice. All of these things Jesus has provided for us. We dealt with two questions in chapters one and then going into chapter two because we had to wrestle with, did Jesus tell any of the angels to sit at my right hand? And did Jesus call any of the angels his son? And of course, the answer to both is in the negative. Tonight, then, we move into verse one, which gives us a number of different descriptions about our Savior. But first, it speaks of the heavenly calling. There are many callings in the Bible. The first calling that's extended to every person in this world is the calling to be saved, the calling to repent. The man or woman that responds to that call and turns their heart or life over to the Lord Jesus Christ, it's within that greater heavenly calling that these smaller callings come. The calling to teach, the calling to become a pastor, the calling to be a servant in the body of Christ. So the heavenly calling is a, is, a, is a very large concept, and God speaks to us all individually. He talks to you differently than he talks to me. He may speak to you in a dream. He may speak to you through a track. It may be through a verse in the Bible. It may be through a Bible study or some kind of a teaching. But I can tell you this, if it's a divine or heavenly calling that the Lord is placing upon you, it's a burden that you'll never be able to get out from under until... You obey until you acquiesce. And we, we call this, uh, for sinners, we call it conviction. And sinners experience conviction until they repent. And believers wrestle with the calling of God in their lives until they say, okay, God, you win. I'll, I'll do what it is that you want me to do. But it has to be a divine uh, 
compulsion that comes from the Lord. So he says, consider the apostle and high priest. So now we have two descriptions. An apostle in Greek is, is someone who is sent. So there's a commissioning process. And we run into this word several times. Of course, they're the 12 apostles, but they're not the only apostles. In Thessalonians, it talks about Paul and the apostles. So Timothy, Silas. It talks about apostles in Corinthians who are not of the 12, nor are they of Paul and Silas and Timothy, but yet they are sent to do a particular thing. The Latin synonym for this word apostle is missionary. That's where we get our English word, missionary, someone sent. A missionary is someone sent to do something. Now, it is true that an organization can send someone to be a missionary, but in this sense, we're talking about a heavenly calling, something that comes from the Lord. There are probably many people doing all kinds of ministry things that didn't receive a heavenly calling from God, but they decided to become a missionary because their parents were missionaries or because they thought it would be a good thing to do. But if God puts his finger on us and he sends us forth, he wants our ministry to be like that of our Savior who came from heaven to earth with a divine commission to obey God. That's what an apostle is. And of course, a high priest is someone who ministers, sacrifices to God on behalf of people. Now, Jesus is not offering sacrifices in heaven now. Animals are no longer dying for us that are here this evening. Jesus became the sacrifice on the cross. He's also the high priest. He offered himself voluntarily. He said, nobody takes my life, but I lay it down. And he said, if I lay it down, I have power to take it up again. That's exactly what happened. On the third day, he was raised again from the dead. But the scripture speaks of him as the apostle and high priest of our profession. So that's something we say, what we're professing. We, we don't want to be merely professors of Christianity. We want to possess it. Anybody can say they're Christian. But if Christ, Jesus, is the apostle and high priest of our profession, that is to say our conversation is governed by, or I should say, it is under the dominion and lordship of Jesus Christ. Our words, every idle word that we speak, the scripture says we will give an account of it. Then it goes on to tell us about the, the contrast between Moses and Jesus. Both of them were faithful, but Jesus has more honor because he's not a servant as Moses was. Jesus was the son. So in a house, if you have multiple children and you have indentured servants or in ancient times slaves or some kind of employees working for you, the servant in the house, his role was to simply do what was commanded of him to do. The son's role was simply to be honored, to be cared for. He didn't have to do all the things that the servant did. And since Moses was faithful in the ministry that he had, Jesus was faithful also in the ministry that was given to him. So the scripture says in verse three, this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses. And he was counted worthy of more glory because of his commission, because of his life, the way he conducted himself. Now, we understand that if every house has a builder, then... 
We also need to know that God is the one who has constructed all things. Colossians and Hebrews 1.3 says that all things are held together by the word of God. So when we talk about creation, we're, we're saying it is the hand of God that has made all of this that we see and all of this that we use in order to construct whatever that we have on this planet. But again, with the contrast in verse 5, Moses was faithful as a servant. And there's the testimony. But Christ is the son of his own house. And we have this confidence and we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. That is to say, you need not backslide. You need not turn away from God. Jesus is faithful, and, and when everything is said and done, he will remain a reliable confidant and a reliable and trustworthy foundation on which you can stand. So it says, hold fast to confidence. That's something you have to do. You know, if you, if you put your hand to something and you grip it, I mean, the only way somebody's going to get it out of your hand, they're going to have to take it from you, you're going to release the hold of it. So when the scripture says, hold fast, to your confidence in God, that's saying don't let anybody come and take away from you your trust in God. Now, how are, how are they going to do that? Usually through words, conversation. They'll try to talk you out of believing what you believe. So if you say you trust Christ as your Savior, there's always some philosopher who is somehow eminent or distinguished in his professor profession and he's going to explain to everybody why I am not a Christian. He's going to go through all of these uh, different kinds of uh, arguments to prove that there is no God. But when it's all over, the scripture says that it is the fool that hath said in his heart, there is no God. Just because people can entangle you in arguments that you may not be able to understand and may put you in a position where you cannot actually defend what you believe, even though you believe it in your heart. Don't feel bad. Hold fast to your profession. Do not relinquish the hold that you have on the Lord, because I can assure you he's not relinquishing the hold he has on you. Yeah. So, so hold to his hand, God's unchanging hand, as the song says. Verses 7 through 11 are interesting because now we have to work on disobedience. And I find this to be a set of passages we all should take heed to. It says, Today if you will hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness when your fathers tempted me and proved me and saw my works 40 years. He's speaking specifically of the children of Israel in the wilderness for 40 years after they went through the exodus coming out of Egypt. Now imagine this. If the children of Israel would have walked directly from Egypt into the promised land without any difficulties or obstacles, as I understand it from the, the scholars who like to measure out all these distances, they say within 12 days, they could have made it to the promised land. It took them 40 years. 40 years and they all died in the wilderness and only two people made it out of the wilderness into the promised land. What was it that kept them from entering into the promised land? 
Go all the way down to verse 19, the very last verse. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Unbelief is the problem. That is always the problem. We're going to learn later in chapter 11 that faith is the substance of things hoped for. We're also going to learn that without faith, it's impossible to please God. I mean, there's no possibility at all of pleasing God if we don't believe him. Yeah. But here we have the, the children of Israel in the wilderness, and the language is they hardened their hearts in the day of provocation. They provoked God. Now, how does a person's heart become hardened? It happens like this. Let's say you have a, a, a couple that, that are together, and, and let's say the, the wife beats the husband. Yeah, yeah, let's say the wife beats the husband. And, and, and after, you know, the, the first time when she hits him, she says, I, I'm so sorry, I'm not going to do that again. So he believes her. He accepts it. And, and, and so about a week later, she gets, she gets mad again, and, and this time she throws a vase at him and, and goes right upside his head. And, and, and he's, he, he's, he's got to get tended to, and he's wounded, and he's hurt. And then after she comes, she nurses him and puts a little Band-Aid on his head and says, Honey, I'm so sorry. Kisses him on the forehead and says, I'm telling you, I don't know what's wrong with me. i got an anger problem, but I'm never going to do that again. Well, three days later, she's right back at it. This time she's chasing him around the house with a hammer. And, and, and he can't quite figure out what, what he's, he's done. But he, here's the thing. If, if that continues as a pattern, you realize she can continue to say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And he will come to a place where he don't believe a thing she's saying. Because he has heard it so many times that his heart is now hardened. And the scripture says that a heart that is hardened like that, you have to break it up like it's fallow ground. So you have to till it and, and just turn the soil over again. And the only way that can really happen is in the presence of God through grace. Yeah. And you, you, you wonder how, how so many people are able to, to stay together. God has to do a work of grace over and over just to ensure that, that Mike's heart doesn't get hard with all that Lynn might do around that house, you see. It's, 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 a, it's a grace thing. Yeah, it's a grace thing. Okay, so he says, don't harden your hearts. If, if, you, if you pass through enough storms and difficulties in your life, you'll come to church. It'll be hard to hear what the what the minister says because you're angry might be upset offended at God and it's like the person who's in the middle of one of these Nebraskan blizzards and they say I'm leaving the house and I'm going out there to the barn and said uh, if you don't if I'm not back in six minutes I want you to stand here and just start yelling as loud as you can now you know as well as I do in one of these blizzards out here with the way the wind blows, you can lose your sense of direction immediately. Yeah. And even if someone is calling, very often it's hard to hear because the wind is swirling. And there's uh, the fear, the adrenaline. Sometimes you got a hat on or whatever. And the Christian that's passing through various circumstances in their life, that the circumstances can be so, so difficult that, I mean, the devil's shouting at 
people and you got your family members and friends shouting at you about certain things. So when you come to the house of God and somebody stands and teaches the word of God, you can't hear what is being said. And sometimes our hearts become hard then. So you're trying to plant the seed, but the heart is not in a condition to receive it. Is why the farmers spend so much time trying to get the soil prepared for the seed, because if the soil isn't prepared for it, you can put as much seed as you want in it. Nothing's going to happen. Nothing's going to come of it. And the, the Christian life, if we don't do the things we need to do Monday through Saturday in order to prepare our hearts to be seeded with the word of God on Sunday and then again on Tuesday or Wednesday or whatever day of the week uh, churches meet, we still don't get a harvest in our Christian life which is why some people have been in church all their life and have never become better Christians because they've never prepared their heart to produce a harvest of godliness, a harvest of righteousness. It's a day of provocation because you provoke the Lord through unbelief. God says in verse 9 here, they tempted him, proved him. Now, I am aware of an occasion in Malachi where the Lord says, you have the right to prove me. And that's with the tithe and offering. But God doesn't like us to tempt him. Prove me now herewith, saith the Lord, and I will not pour you out a blessing. and There won't be room enough for you to contain it. So with money, that's the one opportunity we know in Malachi where the Lord says, okay, you, you having a difficulty believing that I can meet your need, that I can bless you, you have right now an opportunity to try me on this particular instance. So I've told you before, when it comes to, to giving, a dime out of every dollar goes to God. Anything we find, inherit, earn, is given to us, 10% goes to God. That's, that's just the way God's plan has worked out throughout the scripture. And if, if you really want to, to, for God to show himself strong on your behalf, show God that you can be trusted with money. See? And then show God that you can trust him with your money. Yeah, that's, that, that's good stuff there. So he says, and saw my works 40 years, 40 years in the wilderness, 40 years of unbelief. But every day God did miracles for them. So when they came out of Egypt, three days into that journey, they started complaining to Moses. They said, Pastor Moses, you said God would do miracle signs and wonders. He did. The waters parted the Red Sea. We shouted and danced on the other side. But we cannot eat miracles. You got to have food. And I mean, I, it, to me, it just seemed like you brought us out here to die. I mean, I'm glad we got that miracle at the Red Sea. But if, if we don't get something in my belly and in my kids' belly, there are going to be a lot of folks dead out here. Now, what are you going to do about that? So Moses, he didn't know what to do. He went to God. He goes to God, and God says, look, these stiff-necked people that you've got a pastor, he said, I'm going to do some wonderful things for them. And he says, you just go over there and you, you take that rod you've got in your hand, you hit that, that rock and there's going to be some water comes out. And he says, there's going to be some birds come in and going to bring in some food, all that stuff, so they'll be able to have that. And, and, and also you need to know, he said, every morning, except for the Sabbath day, we're going to have some manna. So there'll be something that will appear on the ground 
and it'll be edible. So for 40 years, now think about this, 40 years, God provided manna for them every single morning. They didn't have to pray for it. They didn't have to believe for it. They didn't have to work for it. Manna was there every day, and they still didn't believe God. Yeah. God did grace, gracious miracles for unbelievers for four decades in the wilderness, and they still were angry at God. Now, how mad are you today? And what supernatural things has God done for you every day of your Christian life, and yet you may still be a little bit ungrateful? Well, you don't have enough. You want some more of this or that. But, folks, don't let your hearts become hard as you pass through this wilderness. I know how wildernesses work. There's that period in Egypt where you don't have enough. See, they didn't have enough to make the mortar, to work on the, the uh, pharaohs, temples, and pyramids. And then there's that period in the wilderness where you have just enough. I mean, you're not dying, but you got just enough. But then eventually, if, you, if you're faithful to God, you'll be like Joshua and Caleb. You'll move over there into the promised land where God give you more than enough. Remember the prayer that, that, that the disciples prayed, uh, Father, give us this day our daily what? Bread. Give us what we need today, not what we need tomorrow. Give us what we need right now. That's how we should pray. You pray like that and you keep your heart right, then you will find that the Lord will, uh, he will continue to bless you and, and lead and guide you. So, oh, God, keep us from having hard hearts. Oh, my, that, that's a, it's, it's difficult to minister to people who are cold and emotionless. Yeah. I remember one time I had to go minister to a man. He uh, fell in love with a lady while he was married. And, and, and the lady he fell in love with was married. And, and so uh, he left his wife. She left her husband. And the two got together. And, and here I get dragged in the middle of all of this. And people are coming to me and they're crying and past because you go talk to them and you know all, all this kind of stuff they weren't members of my church you know it's somebody else's church but they 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 somehow they kind of figured uh, pastor Darrell won't be afraid to confront the issue so so sure enough i marched off to the the nearest nursing home and 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 walked into the office where this individual was working and i kind of Knocked on the door and I said, hey, how you doing? It's been a while since I've seen you. He said, I thought you'd probably be coming around here. Yeah. I went in there and I sat down and, and just, you know, did the small talk. And then just immediately said, look, I'm not here to talk about all that. I'm, I'm here to ask you, why are you doing this? You, know, you got kids, adult kids, you know. And, why are you going to just divide up all of this? And, and sitting there listening to him, the first thing I realized was, even though he respects me, he's not going to honor God's word. Because his mentality was, I'm tired of the one I'm yoked to. I'm in love with this one here. And I don't care if it makes God mad and I have to transgress the word. I'm going to have her. And he, and he did. And he did. You know what happened to him? His heart was hard. That's what happens when a heart is hard. You can't even get a word in edgewise to him. 
It's, it's impossible to pierce them because it's like, this is what I'm going to do. I don't care what anybody else thinks. And if that's just, yeah, that's just the way it is. If you don't like it, lump it. Well, I didn't like it. And now you're going to have to wrestle with God because God's the one that's going to deal with you. Because in the day of your provocation, you tempted God and refused to do what God said that you should do. So verse 10 then says, I was grieved with that generation. That, that's an interesting word, grieved. Ephesians speaks of us grieving the Holy Spirit. <coughs> Isaiah speaks of Jesus bearing on the cross our griefs and sorrows. Griefs in the Hebrew sense was dealing with infirmities. It says that the Lord was grieved with that generation, not with a person, not with a family, but with an entire generation. Think about that. Now we say a generation could be 40 years, could be 100. I know he told, the Lord told Abraham, your seed will go down into Egypt and there'll be there four generations, That's 400 years. So we know a generation can be a lot of, uh, a lot of years. But, but here's the thing. If the Lord was displeased with that generation because of their unbelief, is it possible that he can be displeased with other generations because of their unbelief? It's pretty much the independent season for us where we celebrate our liberation from the, the, the yoke of, of England. But think about those pilgrim fathers who came here looking to worship freely. In those early colonies, if you wanted to vote, you had to be a member of a church. Christianity was so important to them that in those colonies, that the preacher had a pretty popular standing in those communities. And you had a lot of people that were politicians that even were pastors, and preachers, because of the, the connection of the word of God. And they wanted to be a city set on a hill. They wanted to be a people that were in covenant with God like Israel. They wanted to be the new Israel. That was their intention. And all of the colonies were experiments to see how they could apply the word of God and have it manifested through their citizenry. However, within about a century of the, the formation of many of these colonies, when the, 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 the war of independence took place, you had a lot of people by then didn't like the idea of all this religion being in control. Yeah, which is why when they did that constitution, they said, oh, no, we, we can't we can't have we, we can't have what we had in England where the, the Anglican was a state church. And I mean, over here, everything's Calvinist just about. And if, if, if they have their way, we'll just have one kind of faith and everybody will have to live that kind of a way. So when they put the constitution together, there was a lot more liberty and freedom and everything. But nobody can pay attention to the history of this nation, the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, and not see Christian concepts unless they either don't want to see it or they're just downright ignorant. Mm -hmm. just, just rebellious at heart. A nation that began as we did, when you look at what's taking place now, you wonder if God is grieved with us. I would have to say yes. I mean, just... I, I've got memories of a lot of a lot of years since since I've been voting. But just look at how things have changed in the last seven years. An entire nation has gone from 
maybe one or two states accepting uh, homosexuality to the whole country having to embrace it. Where we have to have transgender bathrooms. Uh, a country where now you're threatened to lose your federal funding except you do certain kinds of things. We're in Iowa now, they're saying that pastors are going to have to turn in some of their sermons so that the government officials can look at what these folks are preaching because they don't want them saying things that's contrary to what's coming out in the policies of the politicians. And so they're declaring a lot of it to be hate speech. They already tried it in, in uh, Texas, in a town down there. In Canada, one man was thrown off a of television just from reading in the book of Leviticus about where it talks about homosexuality. Just threw him off television. So in this, this culture that we have right now, that in the, many of the, the city buildings that have in the foundation uh, scriptures that are inscribed in the cement, we have a country right now that's totally opposed to God. I'm not talking about everybody in, that are citizens. I'm just saying as a whole, the philosophy of our government now is to be opposed to any kind of activity that puts God in the center. But that wasn't the way it was in the early part of this nation. That wasn't the way it was a century ago. That certainly wasn't the way it was 40 years ago. He said, I was grieved with that generation and said, they always err in their hearts and they have not known my ways. That fits many generations and many nations around the world right now because our problem is in our hearts. We really believe we're smarter than God. We do. We think we're smarter than God. So we remove something as simple as the Ten Commandments decades ago only to replace it with all kinds of other things because we don't want to have to deal with ethics and morality to teach people what's right and wrong. Well, who am I to judge you and who are you to judge me? We should all just be allowed to do whatever we want to do. That's the, that's the attitude. So the Lord says in verse 11, I swear in my wrath, because he's displeased by the unbelief, he's unhappy with it, they shall not enter my rest. And we hear this all the time. God's not angry with you. God's not mad at anybody. Folks, God's unhappy with a lot of people. Yeah, he is unhappy with a lot of people. And I really believe he's unhappy with those people who say they are in covenant with him and yet use his name to do things that are wicked. Yeah. So verse 12. Take heed or pay attention, brethren. That, that's a word that's only used for Christians, brethren. Lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. So verse 12 is very plain that it's a possibility that if you don't guard your heart and you're not careful, apostasy could set in. Apostasy, that is when you move away from what you formerly believed. When you, when you stand close to the truth or stand in the truth, apostasy is standing far from the truth. So you have people who say, I used to believe that. But then I became enlightened. Oh, my, did you? Yeah. Our, our denominations and churches in America today. Oh, yes, back years ago, my grandparents, they believed that kind of stuff. But, oh, we don't believe that today. Yes, I know that's because you folks have gone apostate and have walked away from the truth. 
To follow the Lord Jesus Christ means that we should ensure that we believe what he taught and hold to those principles and those precepts. Maybe when some of you were little, you played follow the leader. Remember that game? Follow the leader, you got one person up front, and if that one person is jumping on one foot, then everybody behind him has to jump on the one foot. And if the person is up front, if he's walking with his hand on his nose, and everybody else behind him has to do the, the exact same thing. But the problem is, if, if the person up front is separated from you by about 40 people, then the only thing you can do is imitate the person that is immediately in front of you, and you're hoping that the one in front of you is accurately imitating the one in front of him, because by the time you go from the first one all the way back here, nobody may be doing the same thing at all. It may be something totally different. And this is what I wonder sometimes when it comes with the church 2,000 years later, do we even look like the early church? We certainly don't believe what the early church believed. And if you listen to some of the, the, the crafty ways that we describe why we don't believe what they believe, it's, it's, a, it's a very dangerous, dangerous thing to me. To, to be a Christian means that we've got to encourage one another every day so that we can take up our cross and follow the Lord and not be deceived. And verse 13 says, exhort one another every day, every day. Why do we come to fellowship? Why do we come to Sunday service, midweek service, to exhort one another, to encourage one another? Look, I know you're having a week that's not so good or you're having a, a wonderful week. We still want to encourage you to walk with God and continue with God and not to give up. Yeah, that's what this is all about. We, we come to fellowship for exhortation and encouragement. That exhortation to what? To, to do right. Encouragement to continue on. We, we don't want to be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And the reason it's called the deceitfulness of sin is because sin itself is a very, very difficult thing to grab hold of. You know, it's hard to contain. It's like a web. It's like quicksand. Once you step into it, the more you twist, the more you move, the deeper you become entrenched in it. Yeah. Poor little ants that get caught in a spider's web. Poor little things doing everything they can, and the spider's coming around them and just putting more and more of that web around them until pretty soon that poor little ant can't do a thing but become a meal for that, for that spider. And it's the same thing with the, the believer. The, the, the sins or the sin of this world, it certainly can be craftier than we are. It's, it's tricky. It, you, you think you're strong enough. Oh, I'm strong enough. I can handle that temptation. That, doesn't, that won't ever bother me. Better watch it. Yeah. Uh, haughty spirit goes before a big fall. Just when you believe you're strong enough to handle it, you'll find out that you're not. And be honest with you, it's those places where you think you're strong, that's where your weakness is, and, this, and we need to go out of your way to guard your weaknesses, because the, the person who's humble enough to say, you know what, the thing I worry about, I, I don't want to fall away from God, I just, I don't want to lose out with God. See, a person thinking like that, they're usually going to stay on the path to making sure they don't fall out with God, but the person who comes with the attitude, oh, that's a piece of cake, everything's fine. That, that, that person may be in a, in a difficult way. Anytime I, I get up to teach, although it may look like it's a, 
it's an easy thing. The, the amazing thing about it to me is I know that something that I'm saying could very well change somebody's life. Somebody may actually order their steps according to what I'm saying. There, there, there have been people who've gone into ministry because of what we teach from the pulpit. People who've decided to go overseas because of what we teach from the pulpit. People who have chosen their mates on the basis of what they've heard me teach through the years. This, this is a very, very powerful thing when it comes to the word of God. We cannot take it lightly, and none of us should be so proud to think that we are not flawed. We're the images of God, but the pictures that God has taken of the church that includes us, folks, these pictures have smudges. Yeah, we're imperfect. These pictures have smudges, and none of us are perfect perfect at all. But, but, but God wants us to, to, to follow his son uh, right on through there. So verse 14 says we're made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. To, to be Christian all the way right up to the last shot of the gun. To be strong as a Christian. There was a gentleman one time pastoring a church. It's a very aristocratic church, wealthy church. A lot of businessmen, people like that in there. And it was one of these churches that really would not be so hospitable to the poor or homeless. And so out front, just to give you an idea how long ago this was, out front in that sidewalk, they had a grate. And the, the, heat, the heat exhaust came up through that grate in that sidewalk. And so there, there was a homeless gentleman one time who, I mean, it's cold. He wanted to keep warm. He went and laid down in front of that church on that sidewalk over that that heating grate for the ushers. Church, they went out there, shooed that man away, told him he's got to get out, get off of that property. He can't, can't be there. They didn't want anybody passing by believing that, that, that he's the kind of person that they got in that church. Well, that, that gentleman got up and just kind of stumbled around. He was sick and ill. He just kind of stumbled around to a house nearby, knocked on the door. The man opened the door. It was the pastor. Pastor saw the gentleman was in need, need of help, invited him in, put him in the bed, gave him some food and some water. Three days later, the man died. But before he died, he said to that pastor, he said, you folks say you're Christian. He said, but I, all my years, I haven't seen anybody that act like Jesus. And he died. Well, what he said stung the heart of that pastor. That pastor went back to his church, got up in the pulpit, and preached a very stirring message on being like Jesus, acting like Jesus. And he said at the end of that message, how many of you here want to be involved with an experiment? He said, if you want to go an entire year asking yourself before every decision you make, what would Jesus do? He said, I want you to meet me in the back room. So about 100 people out of that church met him in that back room, and they committed themselves to doing that for one year. And Mr. Sheldon then produced that classic book, In His Steps, which is about the transformations of those individuals who for one year asked the question, what would Jesus do? Now, naturally, that, that presents a lot of difficulties because in order to answer the question, what would Jesus do, you have to know what did Jesus do. See, had to know that. But imagine the transformation that comes in a person's life when they do approach the decisions they make. 
thinking about how Christ would respond to it. Scripture in verse 15 and verse 16 and verse 17, reiterating what was said in verses 7 through 11, says, Today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. He said, Some of them, when they heard, they provoked him. Howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. I know that because Joshua and Caleb did good. But with whom was he grieved for four decades, 40 years? Was it not with them that sinned, whose carcasses failed in the wilderness? The Bible says of the children of Israel, their sandals never even really wore out on their feet while they were out there. God supernaturally cared for their clothing, but it didn't keep them from dying. One by one, they died. An entire generation died so that Joshua and Caleb could lead another group of people into the promised land. God used the generation that came out of Egypt as nothing more than breeders to produce a generation that would believe and go into the promised land. Grandma couldn't go. Daddy didn't make it. But I'm going to be one of the ones to go in. That's, that's what happened when, when this was going on. And then he says, to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believe not. Unbelief is not a good thing. I've heard sermons where people have really, you know, they've gone out of their way to talk about, you know, God, God understands. You know, he, he, he understands your, your doubts. And he said, what, they, they say, what, what is faith? Faith is, faith is really just, just having doubts about God. And I've heard people go through that entire thing. It's a very emotional sermon. It's a very touching sermon when they, when they teach those things. But the bottom line is, folks, God is never pleased by unbelief. If you don't believe his son was raised from the dead, he's not going to be happy with that. If you don't believe Jesus is God's son, okay, how you describe it, he's not pleased with that. If you don't believe that Jesus lived in this world without sin, doesn't matter what all the scientists say and what other people say, God's not pleased with that. At some point, you've got to wrestle with that truth, that God wants us to lay down our lives so that his life can be manifested through us. Last thing I tell you is that he says they could not enter in there because of unbelief. Well, there in India one time was a man named Sundar Singh. He was a evangelist that traveled around the country, preached a lot. One occasion he had a young disciple with him. They were going on the other side of some mountains to teach, disciple some people. <clears throat> and, and that's a good thing to do. Of course, you have somebody with you. There's a lot of teaching that can take place if you take somebody with you when you go to the hospital to pray for people. The people that are sick get the benefit of the prayer, and the person that's with you learn how to pray for people that are in the hospital not feeling well. So to do things in groups of twos or more is a wonderful thing. So they're, they're traveling around, and they're way up in the mountains, and they realize that there's, the storm is coming in. It's very cold, hard to breathe up there. But there's a rest house that the government has made way up in the mountain just for people that are traveling. So they're going to make their way there. So they're passing through all this snow and this ice, having one difficulty after another, just plodding along. And they come across a man that's laying down there in the snow, and that man's unconscious. So 
Mr. Sundar Singh gets down there, puts his hand inside his shirt. He, he's got a heartbeat, so he know the man's alive, but, but obviously he's cold. He's gone as far as he can go. So he says to his friend, look, we, need, we, we can't leave this man here. We need to do what we can try to get him to that rest house with us. And a young disciple said, get him to the rest house. He said, we're barely getting there ourselves. We don't have time to stop and pick up somebody like him and take him. Well, Sundar said, we can't leave him. We're Christian. We just can't leave the man out here to die. He's still alive. Well, that young man said, look, I, I don't have the strength, energy. There's no way on this earth we're going to be able to get this man to that rest house. You, you do what you want to do. I'm going ahead. So that young man, he did. He left, and Mr. Singh reached down there, and the best he could, he lifted that man up, pulled his arms along his shoulders, and finally got that man across his uh, back and just slowly but surely started taking one step after another. He's moving a lot slower than he was without him on his shoulders. But he's doing everything he can to help that man. Well, in the, in the, in the, the process of time, uh, that man's body weight on him and uh, the fact that he's carrying him produced a little bit of warmth. And the man that was unconscious, he came to. He came to. Well, well, now that he's conscious again, now you've got two people helping each other, working their way up that hill through the snow. And, and slowly but surely, hour after hour, they're walking through the hills and, and they come across another body. Only this time, it's the body of that young man that left him half a day or so before. See, I, I think that when Jesus came and died on the cross, his death made it possible for us to lay our lives down so that he could then in turn live through us. And if we allow Jesus to live through us, we're far more stronger than we are if we simply do it on our own by the flesh. And if we let Jesus stand up strong in us, we'll reach out and grab people and help people that are having struggles and difficulties. Because some people are hurting and don't even know they're hurting. Man, it was passed out there in the snow. He was unconscious. Unconscious people don't know what's going on. They just know that they just they just there but that man that saw him lifted him up so folks let's be like that let's not be like the young man who said oh no we don't have time we don't have energy we don't have money folks we're so blessed we don't know what to do with ourselves yeah this, this past weekend we I just oh my it was a difficult weekend we came back from dallas got back in that house and that air conditioner broke oh nebraska is a terrible place to be if that air conditioner breaks 100 degrees every day, humid. One night in that house, it got up to 91 degrees. I couldn't even have a conversation with Tiffany. All I could say was, it is hot. It's hot. That's all I could say. Well, when I got to church the next morning, I was sharing some of that with some of the people. And one of the ladies said to me, said, you know, we, we, we're such a spoiled generation. She's an older lady, you know. She said, we, we haven't always had air conditioners. I said, yeah, you're right, yeah. And she said, even without air conditioners, you know, we, we learned to be happy when I was a kid. She said, I'd go into my grandma's house, and she said, my grandma would, in the middle of the summer, 90 degrees out there, she's got that wood-burning stove going, and she's canning. I said. Wow. Well, that ended my grumbling. <laughs> you 
know, what's the grumble about now, you know? Folks, we, we really are blessed. You think about it. We, we, we are blessed of all generations to be a part of. We're part of the generation of technology. Yeah. We're light years ahead of our great, 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 great grandparents. And to have what we have today, we should be thanking the Lord every morning, every afternoon, and every night. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the many blessings you have given to each one of us. Father, forgive us for the many times we've murmured, complained. We're grateful for what you have provided us. We've got a roof over our head. All of us have vehicles that we drive, Lord. We thank you that we're dry when it's raining. We're warm when it's cold. We thank you, Lord, that we're cool even when it's hot, Father. But, Father, we don't want to be that generation like the children of Israel that were full of unbelief. We want to please you. So, God, help us every day to live this life, knowing that you have called us with a heavenly calling. These things we pray for in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, 